this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after high school, I, t I attended a local Christian college uh, and one of the core requirements that we had in, in that curriculum that was required of all students who uh, attended at that time was to take a course in evangelism. Now, not to get that confused with evangelicalism, but evangelism, you know, that, that work of going in and talking to somebody uh, who doesn't know the Christian faith or doesn't know Christ to share the Christian message with them. And so it was training in, in how to do that. And in fact, that was one of the graded assignments. We had to go and actually share our testimony with somebody, and then we had to go later on and share uh, a kind of a short gospel presentation, and we were graded on, on those aspects of how we did and, and when we did that. I remember one particular verse that we had to memorize as part of uh, that class. It was a verse that comes out of Proverbs. It's Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a person, but in the end, it leads to death. Not a really exciting verse when you think about it. Not one that brings a lot of cheer and joy. You're probably not saying that at very happy moments. But there's a way that seems right to a person, and in the end, it leads to death. I'm not quite sure how somebody way back in the early 90s uh, would hear that verse from me as a young freshman uh, sharing that with them, uh, particularly as we talked about their life choices, if they want to hear my voice telling them that in the end, it leads to death. But I can only imagine at this point uh, that that probably wasn't received with great joy. Well, when we look at Isaiah's text this morning, Isaiah 34, the chapter just before our chapter, Isaiah 34 is the one that leads to death chapter. That's the one that kind of speaks to this, this way. And so if you wanted to see a, what Proverbs 14:12 says succinctly, if you want to see that in expanded form, go back and read Isaiah chapter 34. But Isaiah 35, our text, speaks of a different way. And that way first takes shape in the desert wilderness. Now, I don't know if you remember the name Chris McCandless. Uh, some of you uh, might remember that name. If you don't remember that name, you might remember uh, a book by John Krakauer in the mid-90s and later a film by Sean Penn in the early 2000s called Into the Wild. Both the book and the movie are based on the life of Chris McCandless. And actually, not just the life, but the subsequent starvation and untimely death of McCandless in the Alaskan wilderness. But before he died, McCandless seems, according to the book and of course according to the movie, he seems to have been looking to discover something about life. Here was this young man, he had just recently graduated from college, and he's, he's led on a journey that takes him out into that wilderness. Of course, the desert wilderness throughout history has provided a location, a geographical place, uh, a spiritual landscape, if you will, uh, where people can go and experience something powerful, whether that's personal discovery or whether that's some sort of kind of spiritual activity. We know that in our own Christian tradition when we think about the Christian mystics, what we call the desert mothers and fathers. But even so, the wilderness is still wild. We're not to forget that. And whatever questions McCallus was seeking to resolve in his life at that point, uh, travel writer Victoria Brewwood uh, notes it this way. She says, the answer he got was a simple one. Nature will kill you if you are ill-prepared. The wilderness is a dangerous place. And it's wilderness, or what we hear here in our text, Hebrew uh, word here is midbar, and later in the verse we see Arabah for desert. It's that same da dangerous place that we hear at the outset of Isaiah. Desert wilderness, of course, 
being that untamed region, that place that's deemed inhospitable, maybe even in some places uninhabitable. Resources, forget about it. Potential dangers around every single corner. In our day and age, we oftentimes forget about the, the dangers of desert wilderness. We forget about the associations of that place as being a place where people get lost and die because we have an entire industry that's built around going there for sport and recreation. We have large storefronts that cater to that. We have all kinds of books and how-to manuals that teach us how to go and be in those places. We oftentimes plan our own vacations around going uh, to those spaces. But what happens in there is we might get the sense that it's a safe place. That's a place that doesn't have danger. But if you've ever been lost for but a moment out in the wilderness, if you've ever gotten injured out in those spaces, you quickly are reminded that it's not entirely a safe place. Well, such associations of wilderness and desert not being a safe place were not lost on the people of Israel. But even more, the desert wilderness encompassed a place of escape, of freedom. We think about Hagar, we think about Moses, we think about the people of Israel. It was also a place of danger, like I said, and testing. It's a place of God's provision and protection. We see that again in the people of Israel as they left Egypt. It was a place where one could easily lose one's way. Again, so many stories of people losing their way in the wilderness. It's a place of intense experience, whether that be because of famine or whether that be because of faith. So hearing that God would use the desert wilderness to communicate something to God's people is something that one might ordinarily expect to hear in the Jewish scriptures. This is something that we could expect to hear based on the stories that are recounted throughout the first several books of the Bible. But what is communicated here in Isaiah 35 is something quite extraordinary. There's a writer who observes here, she's from Duke University Divinity School, uh, named Anathea Portier-Young, and she observes here just how extraordinary uh, this is. She says, wilderness locates God's promise within every human lack, every loneliness, and every desolation. It locates God's promise within a complex history of slavery and redemption, failure and faith. What God is about to do will take shape in the desert wilderness. That's what Isaiah 35 tells us. Or we might say that even in the desert wilderness, and that's significant, not only will it take place there, but it will take place even in that space, that difficult, desolate place. God's promise located precisely in those desolate places of creation where we least expect it. The inhospitable parts of creation, the inhospitable parts of our own lives. And that transformation is on full display here in Isaiah. Think about the different contrasts that we hear there in the text. There's going to be blossoming of the desert and dry land. There's going to be strengthening of hands and knees. These are hands and knees that, that are feeble or broken, don't work. They're going to be strengthened. Fearful hearts are going to be encouraged. Blind eyes and ears are opened. The lame will be leaping. I mean, this is grand language here. The speechless will be singing. 
water, streams, and pools will be in the desert. That place that is known for being arid and dry will now be inhabited with the very thing it lacks, water. Each image here is a contrast to the desolation that we read of in Isaiah 34. It's a contrast that Old Testament scholar John Oswalt will summarize with this. Trust in the nations, that's, that's Isaiah 34. Trust in the nations results in a desert. Trusting God results in a garden. But how does this happen? And when does this happen? Well, verse 4 in our text speaks right to that. It says that this transformation comes with the arrival of God, who will come and save you. Early Jesus followers here came to recognize that this wasn't mere prophetic hyperbole, that this wasn't overstatement by the prophet. A number of years ago, I was attempting to train a group of students on how to better read the Bible. It was a little bit of an ambitious project. Uh, we were trying to give them tools. If you know the old uh, line about, you know, you give a man a fish, but if you teach that man to fish, right, so you've fed them for a lifetime. So that same kind of thing, trying to, trying to teach them the tools that they would need to be able to read the Bible over the course of a lifetime, not just to give kind of little simple answers and let me just answer the few questions you have, but let me give you the tools so that you can seek out answers. Well, part of this training included a reading uh, from a writer who was popular at the time uh, named Brian McLaren. And McLaren had put together a piece uh, that was on John 14, 6. You might be familiar with the passage. That's the one where Jesus says to the disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father uh, except through me. And I remember one particular parent uh, took exception uh, to McLaren's handling of the text, believing that McLaren's position had weakened what they determined was the exclusivity of Jesus Christ that was supported by the text. That all religions in the world are wrong because of Jesus' claims in John 14, 6. But I want to move us to hear something a little bit different here, and I think that's what McLaren was trying to do as well. That Jesus' words are bigger than us trying to win an argument about who's right and who's wrong. Jesus' words in John 14 are much bigger and much more expansive. They're bigger than those battles that we might put together about religions, and they are very much close to the heart of what we hear in Isaiah chapter 35. Jesus locates himself in that passage in John as the way and knowingly does so amidst the prophetic tradition that underscored the promise that God would provide a way, that's verse 8 in our text, and that God would come and save us in verse 4 of our text. It's no wonder then that the gospel writers give us a foretaste of desert wilderness blooms in the form of miracles and healings, the very things that Isaiah talks about, eyes and ears that now work, tongues that now sing, people who are now able to leap. The question, of course, for us is, does that happen today? Or is that just stuff for the book? Does it happen in people's lives today? Well, let me tell you the story of two people. I had a chance to hear their story this week. Um, one is Leo. And if Leo were to tell his story, he would say this. He did things he wasn't proud of. Leo was using drugs, but not just using them. He was selling them. 
And in his own words, again, he would describe himself as being a womanizer. The dying wishes and the death of his grandmother got his attention and got him thinking about his life. And it was into that wilderness that God would show up in Leo's life. Looking back, uh, here's what Leo said about the experience now, Leo as one who follows Christ. He says this about his old life when he turned to that moment to follow Christ. He thought that it meant that he had lost everything, that he had lost it all. But what he soon discovered, again, this is his words, I wind up having more. By having Christ, he ends up having more. Second person is Kathy, and I heard Kathy's story this week. She was a very, very difficult story. And I I think back to my time in Connecticut, there was people that uh, had stories like this or knew people that had stories, um, people that they were close friends and neighbors um, being so close to New York City. But Kathy was in the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. And that experience changed her life, and not in a good way. She says that she froze. She became numb. And that numbness was a numbness that stayed with her for a lot of years. During that time, she got addicted to substances that she understands as kind of an attempt to remain numb. When the numbness started to wear off, she kind of liked being in that place. She had grown attached to that. And so what she thought was helping her to survive was actually killing her as she entered into a a new life of drug addiction. Well, like Leo, Christ met Kathy in the desert, in her desert, and it changed her life. She got unstuck, and she got unhooked. And that's just two stories. I imagine that there's a number of folks who are watching even right now or participating in worship that have a story of their own of how Christ met you in the desert, in that place of wilderness where Christ met you at a moment where all was lost, where everything felt lost and dry, where everything was broken, and the world looked like it was falling to pieces. And you were able to see a balloon, a small pool of water, a sense of reassurance that something good would come, that the future held something better the good news of isaiah here in chapter 35 reminds us that although wilderness might be the first word in our text and we look at our english text we see the wilderness that's the first word in our text this morning it's not the final word in our lives god has something bigger and better in mind for us but catch this wilderness isn't even the first word in our text Now, you might be like, Jibby, what? I can look down at the passage here. I see the wilderness is right there. No, the first word in the text, if you go back to the Hebrew, isn't wilderness. The first word in the text is the Hebrew behind, they shall be glad. So the first thing we read is not wilderness, but rather grateful response of a transformed landscape. A landscape that will see the formation of a highway Verse 8, that leads home. A home where we no longer are held in sin's grasp. That's how the chapter concludes. Where we are preserved and protected by our Creator. Where we are no longer captive to fear. Where all enemies, all enemies have been subdued. 
And what remains in that landscape? What remains in that place that we call home? Joy and gladness captured in the music of the redeemed. Well, this past week, our community experienced a tremendous loss. A tremendous loss. Dr. Bob was someone who did the good work of helping people to see blooms in the desert. Because of that, such a loss is felt all the more. We feel that more. I know that this morning in this congregation, there are many, many people, many people in this congregation who love Dr. Bob, who love him. And there are many people that Dr. Bob loved as well. And for, th- for them today, and for you perhaps, if you're watching this this morning, that's you. You might feel like today is more wilderness than highway home. You might feel that you're walking in that place where it feels much more arid. It feels much less safe. The text ends with, with a song of the redeemed, like I said. And I'm oftentimes brought back to music as a place, particularly when I'm faced with my own challenges and my own experiences of great loss. And there have been great losses in my own life. I'm reminded of an artist named Madish Yahu who wrote a song called One Day. The prophecy here that we have in Isaiah is a promise that we one day won't have to be afraid anymore. That one day we will experience a kind of freedom from our sin and the sins of others. That we will be liberated from pain, from misery, from grief, from despair. That one day, though, is also one day at a time. Because God traverses this wilderness desert with us. As cloud by day and fire by night for one generation, but today for us, God traverses that with us as one who will never leave nor forsake us. This morning in closing, I want to offer just the words of a song, knowing that where our story as a congregation is this morning, as many grieve, but also as we look to that one day, that one day when we might know the deserts and wilderness in full bloom, knowing that in Christ we've gotten a foretaste of that, of what's to come. It's a song by Robert Wadsworth Lowry, It's a song that's been covered by folks, uh, artists in the 20th century. Uh, One of the famous uh, renditions was by Enya. Um, But others have covered this. How can I keep from singing? My life flows on in endless song. Above earth's lamentation. I hear the sweet though far off hymn that hails a new creation. Through all the tumult and the strife, I hear the music ringing. It finds an echo in my soul. 
how can I keep from singing? What though my joys and comforts die, the Lord my Savior liveth. What though the darkness gather round songs in the night, he giveth. No storm can shake my inmost calm, while to that refuge clinging, since Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? I lift my eyes. The clouds grow thin. I see the blue above it. And day by day this pathway smooths since first I learned to love it. The peace of Christ makes fresh my heart a fountain ever springing. All things are mine since I am his. How can I keep from singing? Friends, let us pray together. Lord, that's our prayer this morning. How can we keep from singing? As those who've been redeemed and rescued, how do we keep from singing? Knowing that you who is making a new creation, who's turning what we have known as wasteland, into a place that flourishes with life, that springs with joy. Lord, into our broken hearts this morning, into our grief and despair, into our hurts and our suffering, we pray, Lord, that you would once more give us a song in the night, that we might travel knowing that we're not alone, that we're not forsaken, Lord, that you travel with us. The one who goes with us has come to save us. Lord, help us to hear that in the lyrics of our song, that we too might continue to sing with joy and gladness as a grateful people. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, over the next few minutes, we're going to begin preparing the table uh, so that we might celebrate communion together. I invite you at home right now if... Uh, you're by yourself or even if you're gathered with others, go ahead and take this moment to be